I'm Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, we watch and discuss AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it still great? This week, we're discussing Season 1, Episode 1, Smoke Gets in Your Eye, written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Alan Taylor. This episode premiered on July 19th, 2007. The hit song that week was Rihanna's Umbrella, Ella, Ella. Hit movies that week were Persepolis, A Mighty Heart, and Sunshine, which you should totally see. Um, In this episode, the first episode of Mad Men, Peggy starts work at Sterling Cooper, Don Draper saves the day with not one, but two ad accounts, and Pete is the worst. He really is the worst. God, he is. I wrote that in my notes like three times. More later. So, since this is the very first episode, just so you know... While there is a lot to talk about, this is not going to be a recap show, although we will be covering plot points here and there. We are going to be mostly focusing on the characters as they develop. It is a very character-driven show, not so much a plotty one, and that's how we like it. Well, I think we should start with the character that the episode spends the most time with, and that's Don Draper. So I'm curious, in either re-watching this or watching this episode for... The first to the fourth times, depending on who you are. Um, what were our kind of initial assumptions of of Don? And I wanted to start about Don's relation. I want to go through Don's relationships with a couple different characters in the show, but I think I want to start with one that could maybe be the most important relationship is Don and the work. So what did what did we think about Don initially, and what do we think about Don and his relationship with his job? I mean, in general, I think. When it comes to to Don and the work and being an ad man, it is definitely a huge part of his identity. Being great at it, being being like freakishly great at it, and um, being the person who can save the day when others are floundering, even when he seems like he's, uh, you know, he's uh, at his wits' end, is is something that's so important to him. It's the one that makes him worth the big office with the little bar cart in the corner and everyone coming to him and people like Pete, who genuinely is the worst, coming by and trying to impress him and looking up to him. It Sometimes it gets to the point where he doesn't see other things. He doesn't see people outside of the realm of work. We start the episode with him sitting in a bar, getting you know his cigarette lit, lit by a, a black waiter, and he starts talking to him. And at the time, it seems really, really cool. Wow, he's so progressive. He doesn't see color. He just sees the work. All that matters is the work, Uh, which is cool, except, you know, he gets this poor guy in trouble. And who knows what happens to him after we leave the bar because we never return to him or his story. He just starts asking questions and just wanting to know how to sell this guy and stealing his words. What do you guys think? Yeah, my first impression of Don Draper was really um, his insecurity. And that is kind of present in his first interaction, as you were talking about, um, with the waiter at the bar when he was asking him, you know, like, how can I get you to switch your cigarette brand? Which is like, if you have ever smoked cigarettes, switching cigarette brands is not a thing that happens anyway. So, like, you might as well not advertise for them. That's just silly. Um, But then we see him with his girlfriend, Midge, and he is really talking about, I think, 
Don in this first real scene of him is experiencing some imposter syndrome, um, which is something really relatable, I think. And um, I think people who experience that and people who go to their friends to get reassurance about things like that are people who are really passionate about their work and have really tied their identity um, into it. Not to say that everybody doesn't experience imposter syndrome, but the people who um, express it in their first scene of a television show based on them, I think that those are people whose identities are tied strongly to their work. And I think we see that with Don um, in his initial introduction. And then, you know, we kind of see how he got into his position by the end of the episode also. So, like, yeah, he's the best, but he's also really fucking stressed about being the best all the time. And I think that that is, you know, the first impression. And that's what makes the show intriguing and that's what makes people want to continue to watch Don Draper even though we also find out in this first episode that he's a little shit yeah it's really interesting that you point out his insecurities because in front of his other co-workers in front of Superior he's so chill he's like no it's fine I'm not worried you're not worried I'm not worried but when he gets to Midge she actually you know after playing coy and being all flirtatious she's like oh wait shit you're actually here to talk about work you are actually anxious about this because you don't know what you're going to do. Yeah, and I, and I think that kind of speaks to something that Sal says from Sal from the art department when they're meeting with the, the psychologist, the um, researcher about the cigarette account that talks about the duality of, of well, humans in that case and I think Sal has this line and I don't think it's an accident that, that Sal is the character that, that necessarily says this and we'll probably explore that in the episodes to come but the idea about the duality of human nature right about um humans living one way and believing the exact opposite and i think the contrast between don of who he is at work as being that mid-level executive as being the star as being the person that can have magic and air quotes um kind of in the room and on set and kind of win not one but the, the the two accounts um, have the disaster stumble with with Mankin's department store and Rachel Mankin in the store and then able to to woo um, the account back um, or the account in general is like one dawn. And then there is that, that kind of insecure, like I could lose all of this right away. It is so precarious and precious and like less sure of his p- position, right? Because at work he's like, he's on the top of the mountain. And then when we see him, with Midge wanting to talk about work, he kind of seems like the mountain's about to crush him, right? I I really love and I'm slightly fascinated by his relationship with Midge because she is someone who has very, she seems to have very strong boundaries. When he makes some offhanded mention, maybe offhanded mention about how they should get married, she's like, no, I got rules. I don't make plans. It's almost like a safe place that no matter how, he may fall for her or get com- comfortable and complacent in their dynamic together and how they are. She's still going to say, no, this is too far. This is where you can go. And that allows him kind of room to breathe and grow and show his insecurities and know that like she's just going to be like, whatever, dude. It's not like we're going to get married and like start a family. So your flaws are fine by me. It's um, it's almost like he's she's a really good mom 
in a yeah. gross way. Yeah, she um, she really strikes me as a safe place for him to land. Um, and I think that her reluctance to form an attachment to him and like this outright understanding that he's replaceable to her is actually really comforting to him in a weird way because you can mm-hmm. see how he is um like you said like on top of the mountain at work like people depend on him and look up to him um they went into that tobacco meeting everybody basically knew he had no clue what he was going to do and they just trusted that he would pull it out of his ass and he did um and i think because that's what they're gonna remember they're gonna remember that he fucked up during this presentation or that he was able to pull it out of the bag last minute Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, if you're not first, you're last. Before right? we move on from Midge, I just really love when Don is say Don says to her, um, "A kid comes by my office looking at where to put his plants." Like being really vulnerable with her and saying, "Like people at work are noticing that I am a fraud, and they're scoping out my office to take my position." And she <laughs> says, "Is he handsome?" <laughs> like. he is so replaceable to her and yeah I think that that is comforting to him and I think that that speaks a lot to his insecurity in other other places in his life so it's almost as if he it's almost like how people find uh, this freedom in posting whatever the hell they want on Snapchat because it'll be gone soon there's no mark being made 2019 oh Don 2019 (laughs) So, I guess just keying on the idea of like him Don being different with with Midge and and opening up, and then I guess I do want to talk about Rachel Macon a little bit because I love Rachel Macon, and I think despite there being seven seasons of Mad Men and this just being the first one, I do think she is one of my favorite characters. Um, full disclosure, but there, so Don says some pretty terrible, disgusting things. Uh, you know, misogynistic things to her in the in the room. He doesn't want to be talked to like about a woman like that. And we can, I think, talk about some of that a little bit when we get to maybe Pete later on in the episode. But I want to talk about the duality of Dawn a bit more. And I, I guess I want to ask you folks the question about if you feel like Dawn weaponizes emotional vulnerability and 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 looks for and I guess weaponizes other people's empathy. Right? Because with Midge, like, he's like, you know, she's like, oh, you're actually, like, you know, kind of upset about this. You're, like, you know, on, on the edge. And, you know, that that seems to kind of get him what he needs from her in terms of that kind of motherly sort of energy. But then in that conversation with Rachel, she has the quote where they're talking where she's like, oh, I guess that hurt, like, the patriarchy basically hurts men too like she hadn't considered it and it's a really interesting line reading where i don't know if she's being sarcastic or not full disclosure but in that conversation it's it, it uh, over my ties or cocktails or whatever it is it's not it's not going super well and then don sh- flashes this kind of like oh i'm sensitive card like i have this like complex other layer and that at least from my read seems to kind of give Don a way in to kind of flip the conversation. So I guess then my question to the both of you is, 
did you, are you seeing any of the same things? Do you think Don kind of chooses when to show of different versions of himself to different people? And is he using what he perceives to be other people's empathy to further his own, his own gains, I guess. His own emotional agenda. No, definitely. Yeah. I love how you put that. Uh, he weaponized his, his vulnerability because it does, it does come out in these moments that it shouldn't, it shouldn't be coming out with these strangers or these people that he keeps at an arm's distance in many ways. These people that he just stops by in the middle of the night for a chat. It should be with the surprise wife at the end of the episode uh, and mother of his, uh, presumably mother of his children and unnamed as of episode one. Because she, uh, Rachel is that person who has had to be very tough. She makes a comment at the very beginning when he says that she, he expected her to be a man and she says that her father did too. So that's a lifetime of someone who's going, you never lived up to, you will never live up to what I want you to be or what I hope you would be because you were born not a boy. Uh, yeah, and, and you hear it so many times too, still and even now, you look at a friend you know a girlfriend and you think why are you with this guy and you hear her say but he's different with me and you know and I work in the medical field I deal with a lot of physicians and a lot of egos and I can't tell you how many times you know I may start to complain about someone or someone starts complaining about someone else and you hear the comment going you know you just have to know how to deal with him he's actually fine with his patients that kind of thing. We we make excuses for people that we think well of, and because they occasionally allow us to see a softer side, we shall say. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth noting and worth, I think, keeping track of the way that Don behaves. Um, I'll say with women, just because this is the examples we have so far, but I assume this extends to people of all genders, but it seems like once Don gets to know someone or uh, figures out an in with them, um, at that point he can maneuver his personality um, to, like what Matt said, get the desired result, right? So he knew, I think... That And I think the insecurity was real, like that reads is really mm -hmm. true to me, but he, I think right. he knew that showing that insecurity to Midge would get him the desired result of um, her comforting, consistent rejection of um, a permanent attachment to him, right? But then with Rachel Mankin, um, he gets to know her a little bit at this initial meeting. Um, I would like to take this moment to point out that she puts her cigarette out in the shrimp at the meeting, and it is That's the best thing I've ever seen. That's a flex. That's it a very good such look, a flex. like power move. It's amazing. Um, but she goes into this meeting. She knows exactly what she wants from this meeting, and she is not afraid to um, call them out on their bullshit when they expect her to be a boy. And she's not afraid to call them out on their bullshit when they are giving her run of the mill advertising. And like she said, if that's what she wanted, she would have stuck with her current advertising firm. This firm is known to be innovative and that's what she wants. And she leaves the meeting. And so Don now has this insight to her. And so when he goes to this meeting, he's, 
confident enough with what he's already learned from her to, um, I guess, think outside the box or ask personal questions or have this, like, honestly inappropriate conversation with um, a person you know, that's actually um, a business relationship and not even an official one. So, yeah, I think he definitely, he reads people and then he manipulates what he knows about them and his own personality to concoct the perfect result for him. I think that's really true. That's really interesting that you think that these are conscious maneuvers and that's how you read it. So, like, you actually think it's, it's a thing he knows that he's doing. That's a good question. Do I think he knows what he's doing or is he just so good at this bullshit that it's just happening? (laughs) Yeah, like is this just a pattern that he's fallen into in time where he thinks this is safe, but he finds that this situation either in his solitude with Midge or in this private dinner with um, Rachel, this is going to be a safe place where he can reveal this part of him without any real and lasting... um, uh, uh, what's the word? Repercussions. Can both be true? <laughs> Maybe. Because I think so. I definitely, I... Like, he may, he may not be emotionally literate enough to realize that he's doing it. He just may think, this feels nice when I do this, and this is the kind of person that I can do it with, and also, there are no men around <laughs> yeah, yeah. to witness That's it. That's such a good point, too. I think that the point stands true that he reads people and adjusts his personality based on that. But I also think it's true now that you've pointed it out that he is probably adjusting his personality based on his comfort level and what he feels that he can express in any given situation more than doing that with the desired effect of whatever outcome it is. But then we get into this place where I'm like, do I really think that this this dude's, you know, accidental personality manipulations get him the desired effect every time. I I think it might be a little too early to tell. So we've seen Don with different different interactions with uh, Pete and the other creative men and Roger. Roger, is someone that he talks to like a like a equal colleague. Someone he has an easygoing banter with, but we right. saw, as as Melissa mentioned, we saw him kind of blow up in that meeting with Rachel Mencken. Roger was there, and the nameless Jewish kid was in there. Was he Jewish, <laughs> or did he just look Jewish? I, I I think they had to go to the mailroom, but I I think Roger was quite happy that he found someone who yeah, actually was yeah. Jewish. Yeah. yeah. So do you think maybe perhaps do you think that um, he? Because he may actually look up to... Do you think he sees Roger as an equal? Do you think he looks up to him and like some sort of um, projected daddy figure and that's why he blew up uh, in front of Rachel um, as opposed to like how he may have reacted between like Peggy in front of Pete and the boys? Yeah. I think Roger is... I think there's definitely like a fraternal relationship there. I don't know if it's necessarily father figure. And I mean, this is maybe not, not fair because I'm using future knowledge. Um, but there's a character that we haven't met yet that Mm -hmm. I think is very much a father figure for Don within the context of the ad world. And it's not like it's Roger. Roger to me is very big brother where it's like Don Mm -hmm. wants his approval, probably doesn't want, realize how much he wants and how important it is to him. And you see that, that scene where Don and Roger are, are celebrating and then 
Pete and, and the, rat of the rest of the frat pack of junior executives come in and then Roger's like, oh, this is a mid-level meeting. I'm going to leave, right? So I think there is a different of like power imbalance there a little bit where, again, as I said before, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, Roger's the big brother. But I think to circle back to what you were both commenting on before, that idea of like, Don keys in different elements of his personality depending on who he's with. And he's different with Midge than he is with Rachel. Then we can, you know, assume he is with um, the as yet unnamed Betty Draper, who we, we get as the reveal at the end of the episode. But he's different with with Roger than he is with, with Pete or than he is with Sal, right? So I, I think it, it keys into the same patterns we've identified. It's just kind of a different a different volume and a different temperature because I don't think he weaponizes his vulnerability in the same way. I think he, whether he, it's with Pete or Ken or, or Kinsey and then the, the junior executives or whether it's with Roger, he definitely pulls from this, this different bucket, this kind of more stoic bucket, but he's a lot angrier and a lot firmer with the junior executives and a lot more like, Hey, big brother, I want you to love me with, with Roger, right? So I think it's the same pattern, just experienced slightly differently. In fairness, it's totally justified to be terrible and brutish when it comes to Pete because he's terrible. Fair enough. Yeah, the worst. <laughs> Absolutely the worst. So I think one of the most interesting, talking about Donna's relationships, interesting relationships to me is his relationship with with Peggy and her last name's Olson. I don't know if the, the episode mentions that um, from my recollection, but if we may, I'd like to chat about Peggy a bit. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. So I think Peggy in, in some ways starts as an audience surrogate, right? Cause we, we meet Dawn earlier in the episode, but when we get introduced to Sterling Cooper as, as the office itself, it's through Peggy's eyes. It's her first day. It's through her. We meet the office manager in, in, in Joan and we kind of get, get the lay of the land. And I think to a lot of the um, tone setting for what some of the gender politics and, and, and sexual dynamics of, of the office are, Right. So I guess my question then to to you, Annie, and then to you, Melissa, what was your your initial kind of perceptions of Peggy? Were you, were you with her with this on her first day? Like what? How did you respond to her introduction? Because she's introduced about, I think, a third of the way through the episode. First responses to Peggy are that I really like her. And by the episode, I, by the end of the episode, excuse me, I'm so confused by her. <laughs> like I'm so confused by her choices but going back to the beginning of the episode um one of the first things that Peggy says I think to she says it to Joan and I I I don't know if it's the first time she speaks but it's one of the first things she actually says is um I always she says I always try to be honest and Joan is saying something absolutely ridiculous to her at the time. But what makes that stick out to me is then in one of her first interactions with Don, he tells her to go out into the hallway and entertain Pete Campbell. And she says something like, um, I know it's my first day and all, but uh, do I have to? <laughs> Which is, and Don says, yeah, I see your point. But that is something that is that is so honest of her to say. Like, yeah, I yeah. mean, she's asking a question. It's not like she's like speaking the truth. But like, 
she already hates Pete. He's terrible. Um, and at the risk of angering her brand new boss, who's an extremely like higher up, like revered person in this company, she is honest. She's like, I mean, do I have to? Like basically saying like I really don't want to. Um, and that works out for her. So I love that about her character is that she is positioned as this person who is truly not afraid, to be honest. Yeah, it does certainly speak of a certain strength in her, despite her fairly meekish sort of Im- uh, uh, image that she portrays at first. Seeing as the first time we meet her, she's being like creeped on by- in the oh, elevator and yeah. just cowering away from the grossness. Yeah, so that's my that's my first um my first initial reaction is that I'm I'm really on Peggy's side and I continue to be even though I'm very confused about her choices. <laughs> yeah, it it does seem like such a pivot cuz like we were talking about she does seem so like sweet and meek and she's from Brooklyn back when Brooklyn was just where a lot of families just hung out and girls, you know, boarded together in buildings where men weren't allowed inside the building or after a certain time. Uh, on rewatch, on re-rewatch, um, I think I'm starting to get a hold better on who Peggy is, or at least the person that she is um, showing hints of uh, for down the line. She she is like a good person heart, or at least she you know she fit into the very typical role of what she was supposed to do. She went to secretary school. She's going to the city to make some money, maybe give some to her family, then find a man. It's gonna be great. But um, especially after seeing Joan, I think, and the sort of heights and confidence and knowledge about working her way through this office environment, I feel like maybe it's kind of twigging that inner ambition and inner strength. And she's she may not know how exactly to play the game, but I think she's already trying to figure out how to do it and how to navigate to get to these higher echelons of being a woman, a working woman in the big city. So while I don't understand her choices, and some of them just seem really, really dumb, because as we have established, no one likes Pete. Uh, I think it's I think that's what that is there. That's her trying to be more than just a simple secretary being, you know, doing what she's told. So then do you think Joan is a bit of a mentor figure then for her, like based on like this episode and and the choices that the ambition that you mentioned is is stirred within within Peggy? Is is Joan then like a a role model or like a mentor character? Is like is is she to I guess again to key in what we were just talking about with Don and Roger? Is is Joan kind of her Roger? Like, I'd say Joan is probably more her Don to her Pete. Because okay. I think yeah, because I think a lot of like how Pete tries to be the guy who saves the day and tries to be the womanizer, but is also not very good at it. Um, I think that's kind of what Peggy is doing at the same time. But because her, you know, the language she's speaking isn't being a terrible person, especially to women like Pete and the other men in the office, I think hers just kind of goes a different path and is less gross and less um, off-putting. But sleeping with Pete is also off-putting. Yeah, and there's there's this really interesting comment that Joan has to Peggy when she's giving her the, the lay of the land in the office and 
basically like here's your unofficial job description but how the executives like Don are looking for their their admin support to be somewhere between like a waitress and a wife um and then like Joan has this other comment and like I'm I'm paraphrasing but it's like if you play your oh you live in Brooklyn okay cool if you play your cards right you know you won't have to live there you won't live there long, implying that, you know, she'll be able to make money at the office and move into Manhattan. And she's like, if you really play your cards right, you'll be out in, you know, the suburbs and you won't have to come into the city at all. Right? And and it's just... I, I hadn't considered before that the interactions with Joan kind of awoke some, this ambition in Peggy. Because I kind of assumed that that was always there. But like maybe 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 it is both, Melissa. What do you think? So the question that came into my mind while I was listening to you um, discuss the Joan and Peggy relationship is, Joan says if you play, you know, she basically says like the pinnacle would be to meet a man, move out to the suburbs, and not have to work. But Joan seems extremely pleased with herself, like through the this whole workplace introduction, like I get the sense that Joan is just reveling in her position of, you know, introducing these new women in the workplace and, you know, setting them up for success. Um, so that is a contradiction between what she says to Peggy about what like the highest goal would be and what she's actually living. So I'm wondering mm. if the ambition that she wakes up in Peggy is not to find a man and get married, but to be this powerhouse in the admin department. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Definitely. I, I think so because it is kind of exciting as just to just to look at Christina first of all just looking at Christina Hendricks in that dress on her away with like her shoulders back and a little swing of her hips and that smirk on her face as people like you know look at her and awe who wouldn't want to be that right and you've got you know Peggy with her little old school bangs and her super long skirt because everyone keeps talking about her ankles that's it's sexy it's just outright sexy not just on a very physical way it's just oozing sex appeal and confidence and and just filling in all the space that the world has given you which is still sad because in her mind that's the top that's the highest echelon that as Mm -hmm. a woman in the working place that she can achieve she has power but at the same time she's still vastly below Maybe not the most junior of the executives. She could probably still boss them around a bit um, and probably still has more of the the uh, goodwill among the higher ones. But it is it's just it's kind of weird to see her be so pleased with herself when you're like, girl, you could do so much more. Right. But I think it gives a good introduction about the two choices that women had in the 1960s about success mm-hmm. you're either the top admin at a company or you're in the suburbs and you don't work and Joan kind of I think lays out to Peggy maybe on purpose and maybe indirectly I can't exactly tell what mm-hmm. I think yet um but she sends her to her like Joan sends Peggy to Joan's own doctor to get put on birth control right So Mm -hmm. 
Terrible doctor. Terrible doctor. Terrible doctor. Um, but so that kind of makes me wonder if if Joan is is trying to plant the seeds to Peggy to like sleep with Dawn or maybe someone else in the office because she also makes that comment that's like um, you can avoid the mistakes like I did like that one but like it doesn't that doesn't feel genuine like Joan still feels kind of proud of her you know whatever she had um, with that particular man that passes them in the hallway and then she you know makes the comments about you know presumably also sleeping with a doctor he has a great lake house not that I've seen it but it's beautiful or whatever (laughs) she says Um, so is Peggy like emulating Joan at the end of the episode when she chooses to bring Pete into her apartment. Like, because it seems like Joan has laid out this path, like get on birth control. So it's safe. And then I'm super happy and I'm kind of projecting pride in this, even as I tell you it's a mistake, but that's like kind of like a joke, like an in joke between like two women. It sort of feels like, um, and she also makes that comment about Don's old secretary. She doesn't say like, that this that the admin didn't do good work she says don wasn't interested Hmm. uh and we're also just assuming good intentions here in joan like i'm no doubt that she is very pleased and means a lot of things that she actually says like a lot of the advice that she gives is genuinely good advice about like navigating the system in the same way that she did and making friends with the right people and not sleeping with the wrong people but it also could be an intimidating thing because who knows how fast Don has been going through secretaries, ones that he slept with and ones that he hasn't, ones that he's just like been just subjected to his his temper and his, you know, being an asshole sometimes. It could just be, listen, you may not be cut for out for this, you nice girl who, uh-huh. you know, she's saying things that are quite shocking for this nice girl about like, look at yourself in the mirror, get naked. Maybe you'll sleep around. I mean, right. it's it's it. That's also kind of like a another side to it, perhaps. Yeah, I think their relationship will be super interesting going forward, just because uh, Peggy seems at this point like a really unformed character. So not in the show, but like in universe, Peggy doesn't seem to necessarily have developed. This is going to sound so bad, but, like, doesn't really seem to have, like, developed a personality yet. <laughs> like, she's just, just done yeah. what she has yeah. been told she, to do. She uh, grew up in Brooklyn. She wears long skirts. Oh. She, you know, got this job. She's quiet when people harass her in an elevator. She, you know, all these things. And by the end of the episode, like, we see her making these choices, which seem to be emulating Joan's choices. So I think it will be interesting going forward to examine Joan's intentions towards Peggy. Um, yeah. She's kind ha- of, uh, sorry, she's kind of almost reflecting the change from, like, the 50s to the 60s in her, like, little journey herself, you know, a mm-hmm. lot more prim and proper. And then more just, like, testing out the boundaries and sexual freedom. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like to quote Reba McIntyre, it's like she's done what she should. Should she do what she dares? Right? It's like pushing like the limits and, and seeing that role model and it's like she like has this really weird attempt to make a pass at, at Don because she's like, Oh, this is what 
this is what I need to do. This was implied that, like, Don didn't like his last secretary. I need to do this because this is, you know, what I feel like I have to offer, what society has told me what I have to offer, what all these men in the elevator have told me what I have to offer because I'm the new girl and it's this whole, like, gross It's definitely what Joan told her to. Yeah, exactly, right? And then Don rebuffs her and is like, no, this isn't, no, we're, we're good. Like, don't, we won't talk about this again, but, like, don't. And then when the opportunity arises later, when Pete Campbell's at her door, she's like, oh, no, I, I, I will exert this, this agency. And, this. and there's, like, the way, like, Elizabeth Moss plays it, where, like, she meets him in, and I guess we can talk about Pete a little bit more in depth in a second here, but she kind of closes the door and she tells her roommate, oh, you're in your room? Yeah, I'm just going to bed now. And just, like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's, I, I hear what you're saying, Melissa, where it's like, you're like, why are you doing this? But, like, you're doing it. And, like, it's not, it's not a repeat of before with Don. Like, there's, like, it, there's more agency there? I don't know. I don't know. There's definitely a long way for Peggy to go far as character development like in a in a as if for us as a viewer and for her to develop as a person from her starting point i definitely agree with that and you know obviously with a show like this the most interesting parts are going to be how these characters develop and how those developments affect each other you know so i i know we all have similar reads of pete but i do want to say to some people that i think could be listening that i know like Pete a little bit better than us. Um, they are out there. Please still listen to the show. We'll talk about it. You know, at us. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But I mean, if you like Pete, it's not because of this episode. So, like, no, don't no. ask Exactly, that. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. People, that is people a grow very and can change. And, yeah, no, exactly. He has right? potential. He, too, has potential room for growth. Yeah, well, we, we all we'll do, see. right? We, we all have potential. Oh, uh, well. Levels of potential. Um, Peter Campbell's getting married. Peter Campbell has a bachelor party. Peter Campbell goes to his bachelor party. Is gross. Is gross and sexually harasses a woman at his bachelor party. And I just felt for her so much in that because... And I say her because we don't get names for these characters, unfortunately. From my recollection. The Kirsten Dunst-looking one. Yeah. Where it's like the her friends are there and they're with the other guys who were gross to Peggy earlier, but they're not. They're seemingly being less gross at the the club that they're at, and Peter's harassing her and she's like trying to like keep through that smile and say no without ruining everyone's good time, everyone else's perceived good time in the booth, and it's just it's it's pretty terrible. I just it's it's really upsetting to see. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to generalize and say everyone, period, but every woman that I know has been in this scenario. Yeah. So, and the thing is, is a lot of women I know were in this scenario at the bar last weekend. So it's wild to see something that we are so repulsed by um, being portrayed in 1960 and think, oh, God, shit was terrible back then. And then in 2007, I'm sure people were like, oh, God, nothing's changed. And then still, still, 
this shit is happening. I'm, I'm sure, though, there are still some people going, oh, man, I'm so glad that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> and we're like, why are those women in that bar with such short skirts anyways? Yeah, I mean. Meh. You shouldn't be trying to get drinks from dudes. That's what's going to happen. And even though this scene is horrible and Pete is horrible and it hurts me to know that this shit can be portrayed in every single time period from the beginning of time and still to this day, um, she handles it. You know, like this, we don't actually see the full victimization of this girl in this scene. You know, she says, stop. And then she says, hey, girls, like, we're leaving. Like, yeah, I think that we should go. Yeah, at first it was like, it was, it's really, it's the whole thing is really upsetting in general to to have to witness. And, And not just because I think, you know, most every woman has had experience like that and probably had slight flashbacks. And a lot of men too. Like, and a lot to of men too. That. Like, the groping happens to men at bars. Like, I understand that, but. Absolutely. But I think almost as heartbreaking for me was the way, at least at first, she tried, the way she tries to still make nice while mm-hmm. rebuffing him. Yeah. She's still trying to keep the party going. She's still not trying to be that person, that party killer the or party pooper who just like throws a wet blanket and everything going, this one is terrible. The other's probably are two let's bounce no at first she tries to be all like <laughs> stop that that's not great no it's okay before she starts like reaching that point where she's just like okay sitting up and moving and then now i go yeah because every interaction with a creepy man that begins in this kind of not innocent but like casual and you th- you're thinking to yourself like Maybe it's not going to go that far. Like, maybe it's not going to be that big of a deal. And so it's like, it's a red flag. Maybe I can control this. Yes. It's a red flag at first. And you're trying to like, you know, you don't know what someone's going to do when you finally like fully start ringing the alarm bells. And it is kind of panic inducing to watch that scenario play out as Mm -hmm. long as it does. It is. It really is. And it's not something that's really changed in time when uh, uh, uh totally lost my train of thought sorry uh it's not something that's really uh changed with time where women are still afraid of being that person to say no and being told you're a stupid cold bitch i was just trying to pay you a compliment or yeah. something mu- even worse than that and not having any backup Yeah, so I think this episode treads a fine line between something that would because if if this was a scene just between her and Pete and or if this went further, this would be something that I would change my mind, I think, about watching this show. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm just in a place and which is great that they pulled. I don't know if it's great, but like <laughs> it's worth noting that this was in 2007 and they pulled back on showing some of this stuff. Um, yeah. Because, you know, we've seen it a million times in our favorite shows, like... Since and before then. Since and before. Um, so when I'm rewatch, When I'm watching something old, or if I'm, you know, I will look on the internet like, hey, how much of this is happening? Because if it's telling me, like, all the time, I'm going to choose not to watch it, you know? So the fact that the yeah. show pulled back on actually going through with this is, I think, a point in its favor. Yeah. It is interesting that this moment is sandwiched, too, 
but you know, after the burlesque dancer and then before he goes to Peggy's place. Because mm-hmm. you're like, this dude is really gross and we're on Peggy's side and now they're together. What is happening? What is happening? I, De- you know. Yeah. And it's not like Peggy didn't know that he was trash. Like, he says the grossest stuff to her. And when Don is like, hey, man, or when she's like, when she interrupts him, he literally says to her, I'm working my way up. Like, I am I was going Ugh. to continue critiquing you from your toes to your ears. I was, the objectification in that scene also is so gross. He just starts referring to her as his little friend or as Don's little friend here. And just the way he eyes her, the tone in his voice, which I hate because it sounds so forced and performative as well. Oh, it totally is. He's super doing it for Don's benefit. Mm -hmm. I hate that almost as much as I hate everything, like almost more than I hate everything else about that scene and what he does. And, And I think a lot of... Like talking about like Pete and his his um his boys. It it it's there's this like one upmanship and it's it's super gross. And I, I think it's really intentional, the idea of like what happens after Peter gets rejected and the and the the girls rightfully leave, right? Because he's Peter's out of his bachelor party. He's decided that he is going to misbehave grossly. He's decided that he's going to have sex outside, or he wants to have sex outside his his committed relationship before he gets married. He gets, he's absolutely the worst, and he gets rejected. And I think that that informs his next choice. I think he goes... To Peggy, and I'm not sure how he knows where she lives, to be completely honest. I wonder if there's, like, a step, did he go back to the office and, like, pull her HR forms or something? I don't know. Um, that's Which like is extra, called stalking. Layer. Yeah, right? It's not um, extra. That's just stalking. Yeah, no. It's, like, this whole extra layer of predatoriness. Um, but, so anyways, I don't know how he ended up there, but, like, he, he does. And I, I think that... Because he perceives her as being more meek and and reserved and, you know, the the shy new girl, he probably, I'm theorizing, arguing, um, that he feels like she will be less likely to resist his, quote-unquote, charming advances, if that makes sense. Um, I think that Peggy's not exactly like them like we were talking about before where she has this kind of awakening or encouragement from from joan i I do think that Peggy actively makes the choice to let him in because she just could have maybe not easily but there was the roommate there and could you know would have had opportunity to not to not open the door and you know not make the choice that she did but i definitely think the experience at the the burlesque club informs Peter's choices to go seek out Peggy. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I want to point out how I almost don't want to say insecure because when I was talking about insecurity with Don's character, I that's an endearing thing to me. But 
when Pete goes to Peggy's house, he tells her, I wanted to see you tonight. I had to see you. But he does not once look her in the eye. And I think that is an interesting an interesting change from the way he was behaving trying to get the girl at the burlesque club and how he's trying to get Peggy. It almost made me feel like they had a prior relationship almost. Yeah, part of me kind of thinks that despite, you know, not having the direct interactions where they may have revealed it or may have witnessed it with other people, but it's almost as if that ambition and uh, um how do I want to put this they they notice a, a kindred spirit in each other mm-hmm. um where they both have that sort of drive and hunger they i mean if peggy did say no and she would she absolutely would have been able to like have a million reasons not to say yes and to let him in if that was what she truly wanted one that's like super entitled on Pete's end but I think painting this this really our, our our little hero and our way our audience surrogate in the show this person that we just kind of relate to and immediately are drawn to because she is so nice and innocent and then putting this exact opposite person who's just completely reprehensible I'm just trying to figure out why they make him so awful in that first episode yeah it's really but to have him so reprehensible yeah, I I think maybe, I'm starting to think maybe the fact that they're so different and having them come together is to show them as more of like two sides of the same coin. Because mm-hmm. they both have that similar drive. They're both trying to make their way up and are trying to figure out how to get up there, but maybe don't know it yet. And maybe that's what draws them together in the end. I mean, that makes more sense than anything because yeah on the surface it is very it's i it it hurts my brain (laughs) to try to figure out what the show itself is doing or what it's what whatever the show's trying to do or trying to say about peggy by showing pete be the whole worst including to her it's not like he's the worst and she doesn't know that and this Mm -hmm. still happens but like what is the show trying to say about peggy that he is horrible to her and then the show doubles down on that by showing him at the burlesque club and then puts these two together like what am i supposed to be feeling about peggy that she makes this choice Hmm. So a couple thoughts. First off, I think it's worth noting that that Melissa, you mentioned about how how Pete says, "Oh, I really wanted to see you," and like doesn't make eye contact, and like his body language. I mean, he's obviously I'm pretty sure he's drunk. He's obviously drunk, um, but like his body language is totally different. Is like his energy is totally different, and I don't know if it's if it's that similar for what we we're talking about with Don, where it's like you can weaponize vulnerability. And I think that's a little bit, whether he's conscious of it or not, he's like a little bit prostrating himself to her where it's all like, I really wanted to see you. I'm like, you know, I'm just, Hey, like I'm, I'm not saying I'm sorry, but like I have a contrite heart cause I'm here and I'm not making eye contact or whatever. So I think there could be a little bit of, of, of that going on in terms of like 
what the show is trying to tell us about Peggy. We know that we know that you know all that's the the environment and the the feedback, the suggestions, the prescriptiveness to success, the roadmap to success that that Joan has given Peggy. We know that Peggy has taken a pass at at her boss and then been rejected, and like that was weird to me watching the episode. And I honestly, goodness, I didn't remember it from the previous watches, which is like wild. Um, but she sees, she knows Pete stole, she let Pete into the office to steal the report that Don threw out from the psychologist that Pete whips up trying to be like the superhero in the meeting with Lucky Strike before Don pulls it out. So Peggy, we already know that there was an off-scene agreement where she lets Pete back in the office. So they at least have a little bit of history then. I assume he probably was very nice and contrite then too hmm. to, to, to work down her defenses to do something she knew she probably shouldn't do with the office. And that's I think that's when she makes the pass at Don, when he like calls her out and says, hey, don't do this again. And she like mea culpas by like, putting her hand on her hand on his hand and, and like, you know, propositioning him there. Mm-hmm. So I do think there, there is a little bit of that there is an off screen preexisting relationship that we see, but Peggy could potentially be recognizing that as, and see Pete's ambition and probably heard part of Peter and Don's conversation when Pete kind or when Don kind of calls Pete out and says some not great things. And right before we see Don's own misogyny in the the Mankins department store meeting. But if we think there's this ambition that wakes up within Peggy, perhaps she's similar to Don potentially in a way where like, hey, this relationship could be a means to an end. What that is yet and if how she reasons that and what that end is in her mind, I don't know yet or we don't know yet, but I, I'm wondering if that's what the show wants us to think. Where Pete's ambitious, he's a ladder climber, Peggy wants some more to life, she wants to do what she dares, again, to, to quote Reba a second time in this podcast. Um, <laughs> and, like, if, if, if that's... If he's a means to a couple different ends, if, like, this choice checks a couple different boxes, some immediately, and some maybe, like, for future planning. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on. Um, I think that reading's a good one as well. Yeah, and listening listening to you talk about that, like it didn't occur to me that uh, Peggy's rejection by Don was actually really tied to, to Pete as well, which does add a dimension to that. And it makes me think that like it shows the four people we've talked to talked about now and their kind of struggle for control and power. Basically you've got, you've got Joan who uses, utilizes her sexuality. You've got Don who uses his vulnerability and occasional creative genius. And you have Peggy who's trying to learn from Joan and using her sexuality to take control of a situation. Pete mm, mostly trying to just achieve it all by brute force and by copying Don, but in a really terrible way, but it is almost like, Peggy going, look, you are terrible to me. You made me feel small, but you want me. And that means I have power over you because I have the ability to say yes or no. And I'm letting you have it because I can. 
Yeah, I really like that too. I'm so excited to watch episode two. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It's been so long. I need to know more. Well, I guess with with that in mind, I guess we and looking forward to episode two. Where can people find more of your work online, Melissa? You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow. That's M E double L double O Yellow. And I also co host a podcast called Wild Pretty Things um, that spun off of Sharp Objects and talks about movies, TV, and sometimes comic books. <laughs> <laughs> Annie? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or on Instagram at popartery.com, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. You can also listen to my other podcast, The Daily Nightly, a Jane Austen book club where we're reading through all the works of Jane Austen together with our friend Jesse, who is lovely. And that's it. And you can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhue, where I refuse to commit to a single brand, and I tweet about everything from game of thrones to e-scooters and local admins and politics so it's uh quite an eclectic mix so thanks for joining us and uh we'll see you next time Bye.